Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Corporate innovation as a term, a method and a science is nothing without Dan Tomer, co-author of books The Corporate Startup and soon to be released Innovation Accounting. Dan's academic expertise is at the forefront of this field. His frameworks are replicated all over the world, and he continues to pioneer how to learn, how to run and measure corporate innovation for some of the world's leading corporations. Today, we dial him in from Canada for a global perspective on the vast differences in innovation culture in the US, Europe and Australia, and how to measure for success, and also why there certainly isn't a one-size-fits-all model. Dan has a raft of tools, both published and in development, to model and benchmark your innovation projects, and we'll explore all of those as well. Let's cross over to Dan. Dan, let's talk a little bit about your career, and I know you did a lot of time in product and and building products, and that's kind of that skill set you came from. What people and experiences most inspired you to build the skills that you have to be an innovator with global reach and and really getting out there and paving the way for others in this domain? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the podcast, first of all. It's a great honor to be on this podcast. To your question, I think that I was always attracted by individuals and and the skills that the individuals had, the ones that actually changed the world. So probably not only product folks, so I'm not going to say the cliche Steve Jobs or the cliche Bill Gates, but also in the the sporting world, there were a lot of hockey coaches that, in my opinion, changed the way the game was played and they had a different approach to the game. Also in baseball, right? Do you remember the movie Moneyball? Some of the folks over there were very inspirational, are very inspirational for entrepreneurs as well. uh, You know, their use of data to change the game and, you know, challenge the establishment, basically. So it was that data-driven change agent. I like that. My my background is in engineering and electronics and telecommunications. I obviously have a soft spot for numbers. And uh, I have a soft spot for, you know, taking decisions by numbers. And numbers can, like, talk to me. So... Whenever I was a product owner, first things that I was usually doing with my product teams is trying to get them to have this discipline of looking at numbers and taking data-driven decisions or at least data-informed decisions. Also, I've got to mention, we've got the wonderful Matt Kerr from IE here with us today. Matt and Dan have been working together and having conversations for many years now about particularly innovation accounting, which is one of Matt's specialties. So Matt's going to ask some questions on today's podcast as well. Thanks, John. Dan, it was very interesting to hear you talk about data, and I think we'll, we'll probably get onto that in a little while in the, the podcast when we dig into innovation accounting a bit more, which I'm looking forward to. Maybe a slightly niche subject, but um, <laughs> definitely an important one. Before we get to that, though, um, given your global perspective, you've been out here in Australia, you work across Europe. One of the things we probably don't get out here on the other side of the world is, is that perspective of where we sit versus the rest of the world. So one of the things we're kind of interested to hear from you is Based on your experience working with corporations globally, what do you see as the kind of key differences in the maturity level of of innovation as you kind of do your work across the globe? It's a very interesting topic. I would say that if you look historically, the entire, let's say, 
innovation revolution started with the startups in, in Silicon Valley and then throughout the U.S., like New York and Austin, Texas, right? Those are the, the hubs. But as this particular movement kind of like transferred to the corporation, I see that the biggest beneficiaries of this are the established organizations. And by established organizations here, I would like to point out the organizations in Europe because Europe is a corporate-driven economy, unlike the U.S., where obviously corporations are dominant, but a lot of people know about startups and there's a lot of young companies coming out. In, In Europe, you don't see those many Facebook types or Amazon type companies. So I think the the whole corporate innovation movement saw a lot of traction in Europe. Obviously, it's very difficult now to cast a white net and say, yeah, Europe is more advanced than the US, we're, we're way more advanced than Australia or Canada or whatnot. But I would say that in geographies where you see a lot of competition, especially outside competition from other companies where consumers haven't option to change, you would see the corporate innovation movement being a bit more dominant and corporate innovation being taken a bit more serious. On that note, I would say that Australia, again, from my little window that I had into the corporate innovation ecosystem there, I would say is not that advanced because the users, the consumers, the end consumers are pretty much locked in. It's very difficult for them to go abroad and find better offers, whether in Europe, I can switch from a carrier in Germany to a carrier in France, not needing to reside in France. Mm. Or I can go and have my banking with a Dutch company, with a Mm. Dutch bank, not having to use my, my Austrian bank. And that gives a lot of flexibility on the consumer side, but it also constraints or or forces actually, forces corporations to be a bit more innovative, a bit more customer-centric, whether in locked-in geographies like Canada or or the US or Australia, things are happening a bit slower, I would say. In that respect, let's talk a little bit more, and I know strategy and the evolution of strategy and emergent strategy is something you've been really passionate about. Most companies, the clients we work with, usually have a form of a corporate strategy, um, understand their core and what they're doing there. But as you get out to the outer edges of that and and think about their growth vectors and away from core growth, it's often a a little bit looser, a bit less tangible and and possibly because it's operating in the unknown space with less exactitudes. So how important have you found it to be for a company to have a really clear growth thesis or innovation thesis? And how has that played out for you in the work that you've been doing with your clients? Yeah, it's probably for me, this is one of the most important, it's an essential step on the innovation journey to have a clear innovation strategy, which basically the working document is an innovation thesis. It's important because people need to have direction, right? People need to know what they're aiming for. And an innovation strategy gives the folks in the trenches, the folks doing innovation, the ability to have a clear target and to aim for that. If your innovation strategy is as fuzzy as saying we're going to do IoT or we're going to do AI, that's not actionable. People in the trenches won't won't know what that means. And it, it leaves a lot of room for it to be interpreted and it's going to be interpreted by every single manager in the organization. So then you're going to have different departments performing differently in innovation-wise. I always say that it's better to take a thousand steps in one direction than one step in a thousand directions. 
and having that clarity in, in your strategy process and having that clarity in your innovation thesis gives you that 1,000 steps in one direction. Another thing which is very important for people to understand is that regardless what kind of strategy you're talking about, big innovation, growth, corp- overall corporate strategy, leaders need to understand that if it's made on PowerPoint, it means it has assumptions. So just putting it on PowerPoint, just putting it on Excel doesn't make it true. So what does this mean? It means that the strategy is actually just a series of assumptions that you have there. There, Those are your assumptions regarding the future of the industry, regarding the future of your company, regarding the future of of your your stakeholders and the people you're interfacing with on, on the customer side. So what does this mean? It means that as a company, you need to struggle to validate that strategy as fast as you can. And you do that with product teams. And this is actually the new wave in terms of, of strategic thinking. To treat strategy as just a series of assumptions, then, then you have to validate. And there's a lot of companies that are doing that, companies that are creating strategies and validating strategies ahead of the technological curve. I would just point now to two examples in a legacy industry in automotive. Jaguar Land Rover and Volvo, right? A British company mm-hmm. and a Swedish company. They are trying out a new strategy for car as a service. And Jaguar Land Rover has actually tried this one out ever since 2015 or 2016. What they're actually doing, they're validating parts of the overall strategy of car as a service, saying, are people willing to have a subscription with cars instead of owning them? Do people have an issue with sharing the same car? When do we see peak usage or anything like that. They know that the technology is not there yet. We don't have autonomous vehicles and probably society is not there yet either. But they see this change will come and it's part of their strategy to go in that direction. But before they commit the entire corporate budget to it, before they bet the entire arm, they will want to validate that. And they validate it with small product teams doing one thing at a time those particular things are basically gears in the in the overall strategy. So again, strategy is just a series of assumptions. Just go out and validate. Have you seen anyone in the field who's been really good at closing the loop back into the strategy team, given that generally in corporates there's a team, a function whose job it is to create PowerPoint decks that contain the strategy? <laughs> um, if you've got product teams out there in the field validating the strategy and the market timing and learning from that, Ideally, there'd be some sort of feedback loop back into the strategy and the strategy team. So have you seen anyone who's managed to successfully do that? I think that I can talk about one of my clients in Norway. It's, it's a Norwegian bank. It's called DNB. I think they're quite good in doing that loop. And again, going back to the example I just gave you, Jaguar Land Rover, I think they're also quite good in that. I don't have specific numbers or, or specific process on how they do it. But I know that these things happen, especially in, in DMB. I've seen those things taking place, those meetings between product folks and strategy folks. Of course, there's a lot of pushback on strategy and there's a lot of pushback on, from the product team, right? Because they come from different worlds. Mm. But at one point, they find, they find middle ground and they have a good constructive conversation. Expanding on that, Dan, we talk a lot here about IE about the importance of, of innovation governance or growth governance and how to that point, you close the loop between 
innovation happening on the ground and the executive team and the board and how they interact with it? What are the questions they ask? Uh, what are the rhythms and the, and the cycles they go through? Um, how should they interact with that assumption testing and the experimentation? Love you to talk a little bit about how you set up that connective tissue with the clients that you work for and what you think those best practices are around governing innovation. I would say that that system trumps everything else. You have to have a good system in order to prevail in everything that you set your mind to. So again, I'm a big systems guy and I'm, I'm a big fan of systems. I would say, yes, try to improve your governance system before you try to do anything else. Before you, you create your hackathons for ideas or before you create your new cultural strategy, try to make sure that you have a good governance system. One of the things I've picked up from from working in diverse industries. Now I'm working with an engineering company coming from a bank. It's, it's a big difference. What I've seen, and a mistake that I've seen a lot of companies do, they try to copy somebody else's mm. governance system. A lot of companies in Europe go to Sweden, go to Stockholm to learn from Spotify. And they want to apply the Spotify model, whatever that is. I keep telling everybody that, hey, you are a bank and you cannot copy a software company's governance model. Or you are, you are an oil and gas company. It doesn't make sense for you to copy the governance system of ING, which is a big bank. So I think that everybody should find their own way. That's what I would encourage them to do. And again, the process of developing a good governance system should be the same iterative process that you use in product development. So try to start with a minimum viable governance system, run that for, I don't know, a quarter, half a year, and then come back and analyze, see what were the things that actually worked, what should we keep, what should we change? And then for the next quarter or for the next six months, Go back and, and redo it. Just improve on what you've built. You will never get it right out of the gate. You will never do that. And copying is probably even worse than hiring McKinsey <laughs> to do it for you. <laughs> and this one say every company has its own peculiarities and their own culture and their own structure and their industry dictates what they can do and what the governance should look like. If you're in a highly regulated industry, probably legal and regulation things should come earlier in the product life cycle. Whether if you're in a more relaxed environment, those things can be looked at later on. So as a wrap up to the question, I would say don't copy, create your own. And if you go down the road of creating your own, just make sure you build it as a product. So small iterations, run it for one quarter, come back, analyze, run it again for another quarter, basically iteratively developing your governance system. You're obviously instrumental in, in the progression of the field of innovation accounting with the work you did as part of publishing the corporate startup. Maybe if we can start off by giving us your definition of, of what innovation accounting is and also a sense of how much that's evolved since you, you published the book, if at all. Yeah, I don't remember the exact definition I came up with, to be honest with you. It's in the intro chapter. People, people can download the intro chapter on innovationaccountingbook.com. But basically, in my opinion, if I have to summarize what innovation accounting is, is a system that's going to show a leader within the company if there is progress being made towards a desired goal 
early on without actually measuring the performance of those teams or the performance of a strategy against tangible or numerical results, such as, and in particular, financial results. Again, we have a very sexy definition in the book, which I honestly can't remember because <laughs> I, I'm working on evolving the book and some of the concepts uh, are changing on a daily basis, to be honest with you. Talking about how much the science has evolved, I can tell you that I've been organizing clean startup meetups ever since the book came out in 2011. I started doing the first uh, one in Berlin, uh, and this was the second meetup in, in Europe. So I was pretty much at the, at the beginning of the movement. And Eric Ries was the one that first coined the term innovation accounting in his book, The Corporate uh, the, um, the Lean Startup. In the corporate startup, we took it to another level. And I think it evolved because if initially we were just talking about innovation accounting at product team level or at startup level, and now the innovation accounting concept has, has expanded itself to encompass governance and now to encompass strategy and to encompass other parts of the innovation practice, not just product team levels, not just how you measure the teams, but how do these teams fit in the system? How does the system perform? How does our overall portfolio perform? And all the other intangibles that make up the, the innovation practice in a company. So how does that feed into some of the discussions we had when you were last out here in Australia, where you were at the time quite interested in the concept of measuring the impact of innovation? Is that something we can expect to see in, in the book? I think so. I think that's going to be a big part. Again, how do you measure impact and, and how do you do that in a way in which you're not looking at lagging indicators, but you're looking at leading indicators. Mm. So how do you know by looking at this team that they are going to succeed three months down the line? Or how do you know your portfolio is going to get diversified three months down the line by looking at XYZ KPIs where we're leading indicators? You know, try to be more leading than lagging. Because usually accounting is the lagging science. Accounting by itself is a lagging science because you're always looking at stuff that has happened in the past. And uh, it's very difficult to drive a car just by looking in the rear view mirror. With innovation accounting, what we're trying to create is a set of leading KPIs that's going to allow people to drive their cars by looking outside the window, right? And looking at what's ahead of them, not only what's behind them. So it's basically moving from review to preview. I've got to ask you the question that many of our clients ask us. So what is, for, say, a front-runner team, early-stage validation team running experiments to find that next killer product that's going to change everything for the company, what's the killer metric? Is there a killer metric for that team that they should be focused on to ensure that even in those early stages, they're on the right track? I'll give you the classical MBA answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends on what kind of product team we're talking about. But if we are to, to cast a wide net over product teams and say everybody's customer focused and everybody's trying to do a commercial product, I would say that the clear indicator would be how many people have you spoken to and how many of them have identified or at least confirmed that they have that particular problem that the product team is trying to alleviate with their product. Have you spoken with them people 
about that particular problem that you think they have, how many of them com confirm that? If it's 10 out of 10, I think you're onto something. If it's one out of 10, you probably need to pivot either your, your customer hypothesis or your problem hypothesis. But I wouldn't invest in a team where I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit more budget to a team that just says, hey, just one in 10 confirmed, and that one was my mom. Well, it's probably been a couple of months since we spoke, and every time we speak, you've got at least five new projects on the fly because you're as you're evolving the space. What's going on? What else are you working on at the moment? What is uh, what's the latest for Dan? So I'm I'm working on kind of like three four things now. Um, <laughs> besides the work I'm doing with my clients, I'm trying to find time to work on the innovation accounting book. And uh, Matt, thank you very much for those meetings in in Melbourne. Those were really eye opening for me. You are mentioned in uh, in one of our chapters. The other things I'm working on, um, we just finished a online training for the corporate startup. So. We're going to release it this month. So people that want to learn more about the corporate startup, they want to teach themselves how to be corporate entrepreneurs. They can just take that online course. No need to hunt me at conferences or, or anything <laughs> like that. And then there's two other very interesting projects I have. One of them is with a good friend of mine in, uh, in Toronto. We are trying to change the way finance folks do and expect financial models to be presented to them. So we are building a new a new software tool that's going to help product teams create easier financial modeling for their products, but it's also going to help uh, finance people have a more product-focused conversation with, uh, with these product folks, not just the bottom line Excel. So it's just going to be a drag-and-drop tool that's using Monte Carlo simulations in the background to show you an estimation of what the future success of your, of your product is going to be. I think the website is up, so you can go to estimatic.biz. Estimatic, yeah, right. with an E. Estimatic.biz. And uh, you can see what we're working on. Again, it's very early stage. We're trying it out with a couple of clients. And the idea started from me and Peter trying to solve some issues with some of the product things we were working on together. If you've got a tool that makes writing business cases easier, Dan, then I'll, I'll sign up straight away. <laughs> it's not going to help you write business cases faster. It's just going to show you what is the potential outcome of your product. But it's going to, as I said, bridge the gap between the product folks that have a lot of data on how their product perform from experiments, from whatnot. And uh, it's going to bridge the gap to the people in finance that require a business case and require a five-year projection of uh, what, what the potential outcome is going to be. So I'm trying to have those two worlds talk with each other, which are uh, worlds that are usually opposed. And the last project I'm working with, with a good friend in, uh, in London, we are creating an online assessment for innovation maturity because we realize that a lot of companies have a need to understand where they are actually sitting today innovation maturity-wise. And uh, we're building a small software called AIM, the Assessment for Innovation Maturity, that's going to help companies self-assess. And not just that, but also help them understand what are the things that they need to have in place in order to move to the next maturity level. I mean, we can have a conversation on that topic, but I'm not going to bore you with the details. Sounds great. I'm sure some of the listeners will be uh, fascinated. Is that is that live yet? I think you can go to d-aim.co. I think you can find the website there. We haven't yet released it. The website is not like 
public and we're not marketing it in any way. But the product is live. We've been running it with about 190 companies worldwide. So we can actually benchmark companies against uh, our entire pool of companies that have taken it. Obviously, data is anonymized, but also we can drill down and actually benchmark you against companies in your same industry. Sounds like that will be a a real breakthrough tool for many clients to be able to really understand where they are. It's hard to improve if you don't know where where you're coming from, right? So Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're going to have a lot of confusing priorities. Some people will say, have innovation strategy first. Other people will say, no, we need innovation accounting system. And there are going to be people in products saying, no, we need to have a clear guideline for decision making because that's what's hurting us. And if you can take a snapshot of what, let's say, 10% of your company says, then you have a clear roadmap of what you need to start improving on next quarter and then move from there. Thank you so much. It's always good to catch up and have a chat. As expected, you've got heaps of things on the fly. So um, real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to going back to Melbourne. Now that's winter here uh, in, uh, in Europe, I'm looking forward to Melbourne. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.